Well, we love those Christmas songs and so many things associated with this season. Recognizing, however, that it is sometimes for many people in the holiday season the most difficult time of the year. They see around them all the uh, expressions of joy and celebration and decorations. It seems like everyone else is enjoying their time, but they are trapped in a place of disappointment and maybe disillusionment. They have been overwhelmed with what you might call unmet expectations. In some ways, those kinds of things are a part of life, but at times they can be overpowering for some people, powerfully negative in their life, depending on what the circumstances are, where the disappointment arises. It can have ripple effects beyond just a moment or even a season, but even beyond that into all of your life and even into your own heart and mind. It breeds inside of people disillusionment, distrust, and even cynicism. Cynicism about life, cynicism about institutions, cynicism about their nation, cynicism about just about everything. That's especially true when the disappointment comes from someone in whom you've invested a lot of trust, when someone that you know or someone who's close to you lets you down and disappoints you, it can push you to the point of breaking and it can flavor your entire life. Even worse, when that person is God, when you have unmet expectations that are directed at Jesus, it happens for some people. Uh, when negative circumstances swarm into our lives unexpectedly and, and we may not understand everything that's going on, we might have expected it if we were doing some great work or might have expected it if we were taking a stand for Christ, but it's even worse when it seems to come somewhat randomly, when from our perspective it might come pointlessly. It's during those seasons that people really begin to wonder, they really begin to struggle, they really begin to grapple with some disappointment that can lead to disillusionment and even go all the way to doubt in their heart and life. That's true, especially if you have tried to live out a faithful life, you've tried to serve, you've tried to pray, you've tried to do the things the Lord's asked you to do, you've tried to be devoted to righteousness for a season, you may have even experienced a Uh, blessings in that pathway, but then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, the floor seems to drop out underneath you. And while you would never say it with your lips, you feel in your heart that God might have abandoned you. Those kinds of doubts are not so much the struggle of the unfaithful. The unfaithful, when they reach those seasons, they sometimes recognize that their own devotion has waned. They sometimes are aware that they've grown cold to the Lord. When the negative circumstances come and they struggle, their struggles are different. They might struggle whether or not the Lord is merciful enough to forgive them. They might struggle with whether or not they've gone too far and the Lord would ever take them back. And of course He would. But for a different class of people, for those who have strived to live out the Christian life, when they see their circumstances of life that don't seem to be matching up with what they thought was the life of a faithful believer, it can lead to immense struggle, immense doubt even about the Lord's care in their life. They begin to wonder whether God really wants to deliver them. And in some cases, if they're honest, they they really are asking whether God is able to deliver them. Well, this morning we enter into just such a struggle in the life of one of God's finest servants. No greater man had ever been born on the earth, Jesus says, than John the Baptist. No greater man had ever been born than John the Baptist. 
And yet what we encounter in Matthew chapter 11, 1 through 6, is a season when John is gripped with doubts and disillusionment from disappointment. In fact, he, it reaches such a level where he sends messengers from his prison cell raising questions that he had in his heart and mind that he had to have answers to, and he sends them to Christ in order to find reassurance or at least answers. This is what we hear in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now this passage really introduces to us a whole section that's going to take up our attention for the next several weeks, whose focus or, or, or what the focus of which is disappointments. It really runs in chapter 11 and 12 and 13, a number of groups, a number of conversations that revolve around disillusionment, disappointment, Uh, people who are offended, people who are drawing away. And all of this happening near the end of Jesus' ministry, when his popularity is beginning to wane, when the opposition against him, particularly from the religious leadership, is on the rise, when disappointments are being felt by everyone who's near him, including his disciples. And it's going to lead to a series of discussions and questions and interactions that's going to take us in the next three chapters. But it all begins right here with these questions from John the Baptist. He's the first one to really give voice to all of this. And in some ways, it's the outcome or the result of everything that Jesus was teaching in chapter 10 when he told his disciples, this is not going to be easy. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and you're going to face hardship, and it's going to cost you, and you're going to have opposition, and there's going to be betrayal And you're even going to have to, in some cases, pay with your own life. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to surrender your life in order to find it. All of those warnings that he had been given them, telling them this is not going to be an easy matter. Now, after all of those things, the reality of that is beginning to bite. People are beginning to face the fact that this is not all going to be peaches and cream walking with Jesus. Now, as this unfolds for us in this little section here, we can understand it, I think, through two key pictures that take us to the depth of John's doubts and ground us really in a hope that goes beyond our circumstances. Two key pictures that does all, do, uh, do all those things for us. The first one is the picture of the doubts of a demoralized prophet. The doubts of a demoralized prophet. Matthew tells us about him here in verses 2 through two and 3 about John as he hears about Jesus from prison. He doesn't tell us a lot about the imprisonment. It would have been well known in his day And he really doesn't uh, expound on it really until chapter 14, a little bit later, he'll give us some details. But most of what we know about the imprisonment of John comes to us not from the Bible, but from sources outside the Bible, particularly from the historian Josephus, who isn't a Christian. In fact, he was a Jew, but he wrote about John and this imprisonment. And we can stitch it all together by comparing that and reading what we find in the Bible and kind of putting together the whole story. We already heard about it. You may remember back in chapter 4 that it was actually the arrest of John that caused Jesus to relocate from his hometown of Nazareth up to Galilee. He was moving further away from Herod, further north, further into 
uh, territory that wouldn't have been quite so controlled by the scribes and Pharisees into areas where he could do his ministry more freely, more safely. It was at that point uh, that uh, John was imprisoned. And, and we know about the time frame because Luke tells us that John's ministry began in 29 AD. It was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius ruled in 14. You add 15, you get to 29. So we know that John started his ministry in 29 AD. He was arrested around the fall of 30 AD. And by the time we get to Matthew chapter 11, it's near the close of Jesus' ministry. We're already into the fall of 32 AD. So John has now been in prison for two long years. Two long years. Almost as long in prison as he had been in public ministry. Matthew, as I said, will give us some of the details in chapter 14, but we find much of it from Josephus. He's the one who tells us that Herod had locked John up in the fortress Macarius, which is on the east side of the Dead Sea, crossed the Jordan River, out of the way, in the middle of nowhere, we would say, a run-down old fort in an arid, dry, hot part of the region. He threw him in a dungeon, which was really little more than a dug-out pit in the rocky uh, terrain underneath the fortress. No daylight, no, probably no good ventilation. It was probably swarming with the stench of John's own sweat and filth. And he was trapped there in the dark and alone and out of the way. He was thrown there, by the way, because he had simply done what the Lord had called him to do. The Lord sent him to prepare the way for the king, for the Messiah. And a part of that was preaching repentance. Repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. That's what he did. He called everyone to repent. He called Pharisees to repent. He called soldiers to repent. He called tax collectors to repent. And in this particular case, he called Herod to repent. Because Herod, who was the ruler in Judea, had become infatuated with his brother's wife. Her name was Herodias, by the way. She was renowned for her beauty. And Herod had gone to Rome and had visited with his brother Philip. And there he saw his beautiful wife. And Herod promptly went back. And in disobedience and defiance of the Lord, he divorced his own wife. And then he turned around and married his sister-in-law, Herodias, who happened to be his cousin, by the way. So the whole thing was just really messed up. Well, John heard about it, and he did what he did in every situation. He called for Herod to repent. He called out Herod because of his rebellion against God. He called out Herod because of his defiance in breaking his own marriage vows. He called out Herod because of this incestuous, adulterous relationship. And that led to John being promptly arrested and dragged away and thrown into this dark dungeon. By the way, Josephus tells us that Herod would have killed him except that John was so popular. Everyone knew him. I mean, he was the talk of the whole region. They considered him to be a genuine prophet and Herod didn't want that kind of trouble on his hands. And so instead of just killing him, he locks him away in this old, hot, deserted fortress across the river, the Jordan River. And that's where John sat sweltering in darkness and loneliness for two years. It'd be easy to miss all that. If you just read this verse and said John heard about it in prison, it'd be easy not to take the time to consider what it must have been like for John. This man who had been called by God to go out and preach and prepare the way for the king. He started to preach and people came. In fact, so many people came. He had to relocate his ministry down to the Jordan River because he couldn't find anywhere else with that much water to baptize that many people. 
Because they were coming from Galilee in the north. They were coming from Judea in the south. They were coming from the coastland. They were coming from all over the people. People were flocking. Scribes and, and leaders of the nation. Pharisees were coming. Soldiers were coming. Tax collectors were coming. Common people from all society were coming. And they were coming every day. And John was preaching every day. And he was baptizing every day. And all of that stuff was just creating an enormous, enormous ruckus throughout the entire nation. And John's fame and John's credibility and John's influence was spreading everywhere every day until all of a sudden it came to a dead silence. No more crowds, no more preaching, no more service to God, no more anything for him. Now, John was a godly man. Jesus says that there's no one greater than John who had been born on the earth. But he was a man like anyone else. It was only a matter of time before he would have to grapple and wrestle with questions. As he sought bound in the darkness, situated in the stench of his pit, dealing with the squalor of his situation, not hearing any word that anybody is standing up for him. I'm sure he struggled every day with the cruelty of his captors, the humiliation of his situation, the whole injustice of everything that had gone on. He had done nothing wrong. He had violated no laws. He was completely unjust what had happened to him. And no one seemed to say anything. In fact, I doubt very many people even came to see him. In fact, Jesus never went to see him. In two years. His conditions were miserable. Every day was a challenge. He felt forgotten by the world and it appeared he had been forgotten by God maybe in the early days he could make sense out of his imprisonment and his suffering he knew that he had taken a strong stand he knew he had angered a powerful person he understood that there was sometimes a price to pay but as weeks turned into months and then months dragged into years I'm sure he started to ask himself the same question you and I would have asked ourselves is this what you get for being faithful to the Lord is this really God's design if you have enough courage to speak out uh, against all the ills and evils like God had asked you to if you're calling on people to live lives of sincerity, if you're calling out hypocrisy among your nation, if you're confronting sin, even the sin of the powerful, if you have that kind of boldness and that kind of courage, is this the way God wants it to work out? I mean, really, does He want the very people who are trying to do the right thing to be set aside and silenced for two years even? And there was no indication of an outcome. And there was no evidence that this was really going anywhere. He had to have those questions. You know, some people think it's inappropriate to even suggest that John would struggle with those kinds of things. He must have had other motivations. Maybe he's just asking these questions for the sake of his disciples. I, I, I don't think that's true. He's a godly man, but he was a man. And he was as prone to these kinds of things as his predecessor, Elijah, who you remember also struggled with disillusionment. You remember Elijah, he went up to the mountain whenever he heard that Ahab was going to have some massive pagan ritual. Ahab had called in 1 Kings 18 for 450 prophets of Baal and 800 prophets of Asherah, 850 prophets 
on the mountain to perform this massive pagan ritual ceremony in order to call on the gods to send rain because there was no rain in Israel at that time. And they all gather up there and Elijah shows up. And immediately he confronts the people. He boldly challenges everyone on the mountain that day. He says, how long will you limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the scripture tells us that the people didn't answer him a word. And we read there in 1 Kings chapter 18 that that wasn't enough for Elijah, he, he went uh, even beyond that. In verse 25, he said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God and put no fire to it. And then they took the bull that was given to him and they prepared it and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah began mocking them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep, or, and you need to awaken him. And they cried out, and they cut themselves as was their custom with swords and lances, until blood gushed out. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the oblation in the evening, and there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And Elijah said to the people, Come near me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed, two, uh, if you will, silos of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at that time, the offering, the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then at that moment, fire fell from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord is God. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Tremendous victory. It's a literal mountaintop experience. All that just running exactly the way Elijah envisioned it. But that's not the end of the story. Because we go down to verse to chapter 19 and we encounter Jezebel, the corrupt and ruthless wife of Ahab and the queen in Israel who heard about the massacre and she turns her sights on revenge. She had seared her own conscience through decades of moral degradation and rejection of God, not to mention pagan ceremony. 
And now in her sinful heart, she, rather than responding to the truth of God and the powerful display, she sets her heart on rage against Elijah. And in verse 1 of 1 Kings 19, we read that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not Make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs in Judah. And he left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, into the desert. And he came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He's suicidal. He's absolutely at his end here. Disillusioned, disheartened, dismayed. He may have, he may have been responding to his expectations. Maybe he thought with that kind of powerful display, that kind of powerful message and response from God, he may have assumed that all the people within Israel would have repented on a wide scale, maybe even expected Jezebel and Ahab to repent, but it didn't happen. And instead, he found himself threatened and hunted and on the run. And he runs and he runs deeper and deeper into the desert. In fact, 40 days, 40 days wandering alone through the desert until finally he comes to Mount Sinai. And there, 1 Kings 19.9 says, he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, only am left, and now they seek my life to take it away. Here is a godly man. Elijah is one of those two people who never died. You know, the Lord took him. He didn't even have to go through the experience of death. The Lord just took him in a chariot. This is a godly, godly man. But at this point in his life, he is filled with discouragement, disappointment, disillusionment. He would have expected things to work out differently in his ministry, going from one powerful event to the next, one extraordinary experience to the next, that God would protect him, that God would deal with his enemies, that God would uphold justice. And of course, none of that happened. And all of it skewed his perspective so that he became filled with self-pity and filled with disillusionment. And of course, in verse 18, the Lord has to remind him, I have left 7,000 in Israel, all the knees of whom have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God was doing what God was doing. God was working out his plan, but Elijah didn't see any of that, you see. He was disillusioned. Nothing Nothing in his life was going the way that he would have imagined. It seemed as if Everything he told others about turning to the Lord, trusting the Lord, how the Lord would care for them, as if none of that was working out in his own life. Those are some of the same kind of struggles that John was going through. He had been loyal to God. He had been faithful to God. And now after so many months and really years suffering in a dark and wretched dungeon, he begins to wonder whether he got the message right. Whether he understood God's message, whether he had communicated it accurately. He wasn't really questioning Jesus, but he was wondering whether or not he really understood. He wasn't saying that Jesus had maybe misled him, but he maybe was just mis led himself 
You know, in some way, John is like all of the Old Testament prophets. They understood clearly some things about God and about the Messiah and about the King, but they didn't understand everything clearly. There were still missing pieces that they had to put together. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 1 concerning this salvation. The prophets prophesied about the grace that would be brought to you. They searched and inquired carefully about it, inquiring what manner or time the spirit within them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. That, that phrase, what manner or time, sometimes it's translated what person or time, but there's not actually a definitive personal pronoun there. It's just talking about the, the, the circumstances. They were, they were questioning about the, the, what circumstances and what time this salvation would be accomplished. They wanted to know when it would take place and how it would take place. They knew certain things. They knew about his sufferings. They knew about his glory. They understood that the sufferings would precede the, the glory. They, knew under, they understood some things about the sequence, but there were a lot of things that they didn't know. And it was a mystery to them. I, I read this week, somebody said, it's kind of like painting by numbers. You remember painting by numbers? You take that little sheet of paper and it's got all the lines and it's got little numbers in it. And you take your paintbrush and you start filling in, you know, all the ones and all the twos with the color coordinated in the key. And as you paint and as you paint and you paint, the picture starts to form and you start to see what it is that you're looking at. And that, that's the way it was for these Old Testament prophets. They were just filling in little pieces. They were filling in little patches of the picture. And as they filled in a little more and a little more, it got more and more clear, but they didn't have it all painted out. There were still pieces that left them wondering. And John was in a similar situation. He, he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He, he understood a lot about the, the king, the Messiah. He accurately proclaimed his coming. All of that was true, but the exact timing of it was still unclear. By the way, Peter says all of that about the Old Testament prophets and even including people like John who would have been in that category. He says all that for your benefit. As he says, because sometimes you are facing the mysterious providence of God. You are having questions, just like the prophets would have had questions. You have things that aren't filled in, just like they have things that aren't filled in. He talks about you who rejoice in this salvation that's been proclaimed to you, even while grieved by various trials, he says. But holding faith in Jesus, who though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So even you are kind of going through that process where you're putting together a picture. You don't see everything that God is going to do or everything that God is doing through Christ Hopefully, you have filled in enough of the picture through the Word of God and through your own experiences and observations that you've come to realize that it's Christ that you're looking at, but you may not have all the answers. You don't see Him, not yet, but you still rejoice in Him with joy inexpressible. That's the glory, Peter says, that we share even with those Old Testament prophets. This has been a challenge for believers for all of time. They trust in God's righteous plan. They trust in God's promises, but they cannot always see all the details of how it is going to be worked out. We serve the Lord as faithfully as we can. We sacrifice where we believe He's called us to, and yet our life is not always met with the expectations of what we think our life should have been. We don't always see his justice carried out. We don't always see loyalty and faithfulness. We don't always find people loving us when we love them. We don't always see the response of, uh, of uh, our children. We don't always see the response of our family. We don't always see the response of our friends the way we would want to see it. We might labor and toil and obscurity with almost no visible fruit. And all the while tempted to begin to wonder... Did we get it right? 
Is this really God's plan? Is this really God's message? It's easy to become perplexed and confused by all your preconceived notions and you begin to struggle with doubts. This was John. Remember, he was the one who back in chapter 3 came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is right there. It is imminent. It is, it is upon us. In fact, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the king, the Messiah, is coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. So John understood that the king is coming. He proclaimed that the king is coming, but he also proclaimed that judgment was coming, that he was going to come and he was going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He was going to bring out his winnowing uh, uh, fan and he was going to, he was going to bring about the, the, the fire of judgment. All that's true. He just didn't understand that there was going to be a huge delay between his first coming and his second coming. And so now here he is in prison and he's been preaching that and now he's sitting there for almost two years and he reaches a point where he's beginning to wonder if this is the right pathway, the right message So he calls some disciples to himself and he sends them with these two questions. Are you the one who's coming or should we look for another? It's a great question, by the way. That's an excellent question. That's the question of all questions, really. That's the ultimate question that everyone should be asking themselves, even if they don't ask themselves. Is Jesus the one or should you look for another? Is Jesus the coming one? And that was kind of a messianic title in those days. It summed up a number of promises out of the Old Testament that you find all over the place. Most prominent, Daniel chapter 7. I saw, Daniel says, night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancients of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the peoples, nations and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the coming one. Or Isaiah 11. There will come forth one a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord and he will judge not by what his eyes see. He'll decide disputes not by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So John has now spent a couple of years locked away in this obscure prison and he begins to wonder, wait, is this the guy, is this the one who's going to do all of that? I mean, he hasn't set up a kingdom yet. He hasn't established a throne yet. And he doesn't seem really to be dealing with any of the injustices. And the meek and the poor and the oppressed are still poor and oppressed. And the world that he entered into that's so messed up is still messed up. And here I am, having stood up for him, now locked away in some, in some forsaken prison. So he wants to know, did I get the wrong man? Are you the one who is to come? Or should I look for another? Are you the one who is going to set the world aright? Or should we look for someone else to do that? Are you the one that's going to bring justice to this world? Or should we find someone else to do that? 
Are you the one who's going to unite all the nations? Are you the one that's going to unite all the peoples? Are you the one that's going to deal with the arrogant and the haughty and the proud? Are you the one that's going to finally bring justice to the weak, equity to the oppressed? Or should we find someone else that's going to do that? Are you the one who's finally going to bring peace to the earth? Are you the one who's going to wipe out ungodliness? Are you the one who's going to forgive our sins? Or should we find somebody else? It's a great question. It's a question you should be asking. In your own heart, you should be asking that question. That's a very important question. Well, Matthew has an answer, or really Jesus has an answer, as he takes us from this picture of the demoralized prophet to a picture in verses 4 through 6 of a convincing Savior. The confirmation of a convincing Savior, the confirmation signs of a convincing Savior, we might even say. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Luke actually tells us that it was right at that moment that Jesus healed certain people and cast out certain demons. So, so he not only said these words, but he gave for the benefit, apparently, of John and his disciples, he gave them on the spot that very hour miracles to align with what he was telling them. And what he did and what he said would have made sense to John because these are all the very things that the Old Testament had spoken about when it came to the kingdom. These were exactly the things that were spoken about. For example, Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Or Isaiah 29, 16, your dead shall live, their bodies will rise, you who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. Or Isaiah 29, 18, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of the gloom and darkness of their eyes the blind will see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind will exult in the Holy One of God. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He set me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prison to those who are bound. These are all the things that the Lord promised to do, and Jesus did them. By the way, it's interesting that when John is in the midst of all these doubts and kind of wondering, you know, why isn't this happening? Are you really the one? Jesus doesn't turn to him and say, John, you, that, those things are not literal. They're just spiritual. You know, we're just talking about spiritual, you know, blindness and spiritual deafness, and this is going to be spiritual. Or, no, it is real. These are real miracles, real works in order to confirm exactly what John understood and in order to prove that this is the king who will bring in this kingdom. He does all these things and then he reminds them, by the way, the poor are getting preached to. They're not being forgotten. That's the focus of Jesus' ministry. He wasn't, he wasn't enamored with all the, all the elites of the society. He wasn't enamored with all of the accolades that would come to them. He was doing exactly what the king would do. And he sends all this word back to John, trusting that John would understand. He, that is Jesus, had brought and introduced the kingdom. And it was at hand. It was right there. It was within the reach of Israel. Jesus was not just some great teacher or philosopher. He wasn't just some, you know, magnificently virtuous 
guy, if he was just that, then he would have been just a footnote in history with all of the other prophets that Josephus and other historians noted during that time. But that wasn't what he was, see? He was the coming one. And we know he was the coming one because of the works that he did. You say, well, why aren't the works still going on? Why aren't we still seeing those kinds of things? Because Israel rejected their king. And they rejected their kingdom. It was at hand. It was available to them if they had repented and received him. But he came to his own and his own did not receive them. Receive him. The deficiency, the disappointment, in other words, wasn't with Jesus. It was with the people of Israel. They did not respond to this Messiah. And so all of these works that were done gloriously in their presence were taken away when Christ himself was taken away. As a matter of fact, he'll go down later in the chapter and and he'll pronounce woes to the cities where most of his miracles were done because in spite of all these amazing works, guess what? They still didn't believe. Even with his resurrection, they still didn't believe. So it isn't really a question of whether Jesus is the coming one, whether he really is the king. He is, he was, and he is. And it's not even a question of whether or not he will restore people the way he restored them in his life or whether or not he will clear out the threshing floor, whether he'll separate the chaff, whether he'll bring about judgment. He will. But in order for him to do that, Israel must be prepared. And in order for Israel to be prepared... There must be a spiritual work done in their hearts. And the evidence of the fact that it wasn't done is the fact that they rejected Him. They rejected Him. And so, all of that kingdom and all of those promises and all that power and all that glory awaits God's timing. It awaits God's timing. We're still coloring in. We're still painting in the numbers. Seeing the way God is unfolding all of these things. Can be disheartening. Can be challenging. And can, in some minds, it can raise doubts. But the doubts only linger as long as as your plan is the plan that sets the expectations. When God's plan sets the expectations, you can turn your eyes to Christ. And you can see that He is the, the, the expected one. Israel, unfortunately, never asked the question that John asked. And if they did, they answered it the wrong way. They kept looking for someone else. Self-centered and impatient. They only wanted a God who would indulge their lust. They only wanted a God who wouldn't demand that they repent. They only wanted a Savior who would deliver them from some of their pain, but not from their sin. And so they missed the coming one. They missed the coming one. I hope you don't. I hope you ask yourself those two questions. Is he the one who was coming? Or should we look for another? Let me tell you, you shouldn't. There is no other who was so righteous as to not have his own sin. And there is no other who because of his purity could make a sacrifice that would absorb and appease all the wrath of God so that sinners like you and I could escape eternal condemnation. There's no other who can offer forgiveness 
Because there's no other who can satisfy God. And there's no other who has the power to not only restore this world and set at right all the things that are wrong, there's no other who has the ability to transform your heart the way that He does. So stop asking whether there is any other. He is the one. He's the coming one. And the challenge here is that you wouldn't be like Israel. Jesus says it at the very end. Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. Jesus is acknowledging, yes, there are going to be people who cannot get past the delays. There are going to be people who cannot get past the disappointments. There are going to be people who are going to conclude that they want some other God, some other Savior, some other life. Some other kingdom. But the pathway of blessing, the pathway of salvation, is the person who comes to Christ and realizes He is the one. The one that God promised. The one who can redeem. The one who can save you. I pray that you would accept him as your king today. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here this morning and you're asking that question, if you're here this morning and you're realizing he is the king, let me encourage you. Stop by our Welcome center, after the service, give us a chance to hear how the Lord is at work in your heart. You can't imagine the joy that we'd have. Don't feel any shame or any hesitation. We want to know. We want to pray for you. We want to talk to you about all the ways that the Lord wants to work in your heart. We'd love to hear those things. So if you're here this morning and God is speaking to you, please come by and see us. It's down the hallway to the right. I'll be there. Some others will be there. We'll greet you with the love of Christ. Father, we're grateful for this hour and thankful for this message. So thankful that when we and John or anyone fall into these seasons of despair, we need not drown in them. For Christ has given us Himself to answer all of our questions to provide all of the solutions, to give us all of the light and truth that we would ever need. We pray, Father, that you would help us to turn our eyes to him, that we would see in him the all-sufficient king, the savior of all the world, the coming one who has brought redemption to mankind. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.